0: everyone and a very warm welcome to this special episode, marking World Press Freedom Day 2023. My name is Benjamin Tete, and I'll be your host for today. For the first part of this series, we look at press freedom in general from the viewpoint of a journalist whose job it is to tell the story and keep public office holders in check. And today, I have a very solid lineup comprising two special friends who are also journalists, one from Africa one from Asia. And what connects all of us is journalism, specifically investigative journalism. First is Hanayu Oya, who I got to meet at the Global Investigative Journalism Circle some five or so years ago. And she is a multi-award winning journalist and documentary filmmaker from Japan. Her awards include Best Documentary Film from the Kinema Junpo Award for Best Film, Her documentaries have been screened at prominent international film festivals, including the Busan International Film Festival, the largest film festival in Asia. And she is currently professor at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University and from Nairobi in Kenya we have John Alenamu, another great friend and colleague. John is award-winning investigative journalist and founder of Africa Uncensored, one of Africa's top most investigative journalism bodies. With nearly 20 years of experience, John is one of the brave journalists who dare to go after influential figures in his home country of Kenya and beyond. John and Anaio, a very warm welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, thank, Ben.
2: Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for having us here.
0: It's been a while, so let's catch up first. And I know I read a short bio of you, but tell me what your journalism path has been over these years.
2: Sure. So my expertise is investigative journalism and documentary filmmaking. And especially, I always wanted to use my Journalism voice to shed light on the people in the underrepresented communities and help their voices heard in society. And I started my career back in Japan in 2012, so 11 years ago. It's been a while. <laughs> uh, so I started my career as a PB reporter in Okinawa, which is an underrepresented minority community in Japan of U.Q people and i was you know a japanese young reporter who were like such you know burning passion for journalism and then that was actually my first time to live in that underrepresented community and the moment i arrived there i realized that in this land i am outsider and i need to learn how to be humble to be trusted by my source my people here so My experience uh, on the last, the following six, seven years in Okinawa really helped me to understand what it means to be a storyteller and what it means to be a good story listener before becoming a journalist. So that was my beginning. And then in 2018, I came to the U.S. with a Fulbright scholarship program, and I did an investigative uh, project with UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley for three years. And then I'm here at Syracuse. I'm currently teaching uh, radio reporting and documentary production. And yeah, I suddenly love teaching journalism. I mean, I didn't expect that I would love teaching journalism. I bet you do. But, yeah, I would love to talk more about this. Absolutely.
0: And and even prior to this conversation, you were sharing some data and also trying to explain how it is trying to convince um younger students who are going into college, some of who you teach, to have an appreciation for journalism, especially the footwork of journalism, going on the ground and doing stories besides sitting on, you know, screens and looking pretty. And so we will come to delve into that. But now let me go to John. John, tell me about your journalism path and especially investigative journalism. Tell us more about what your journalism career path Tells
1: so um, like Hanayo, I I also wanted to tell really interesting stories. Um, I thought that um, you know, being when, when you're the young journalist, you think that it is your imprint on journalism that's going to change the profession. Um, and and I I came into the into the profession with a similar kind of almost narcissistic belief that, um, that uh, I would change things. But uh, I really just wanted to tell very interesting stories. And, and for me, it was exposure to, um, I guess the other side of, of Kenya, That being um, people who have um, many different challenges um, from the kind of victimization that they, they, you know, went through uh, because of the government, um, Mm -hmm. certain government policies, um, policing specifically. Um, And from the feature reporting that I I began doing um, back as a broadcast journalist, um, which is what I trained for. I, I kind of fell into investigative journalism because you find that the more you want to tell deeper, more nuanced stories, the more you're kind of led down the path towards, you know really looking for the answers that nobody is um, uh, is able to get through, uh, get to and that kind of hard access that um, people would want and relish to see in order to better understand their societies. So I, I began my my career, Let's see, um, 2005, so so a, a little longer than Hanayo, but but uh, we're still in the same sort of like uh, I guess, in 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 my language we call it rika, so the same kind of age group. I, I trained as a broadcast journalist and and I did that for about ten years before uh, realizing that um, the space was changing quite a bit, um, the advent of um, of uh, digital journalism and um, the shifts that we saw starting to take place in a newsroom was such that we felt um, that it was time to to try and see if we could create a niche product for our audiences. not being investigative journalism, what what we had had, uh, worked on and had had, uh, done for a number of years. And so we created Africa Uncensored now. Can you believe it, Ben? It's been seven years. Oh my goodness! Uh, Congratulations,
0: yeah. you guys are doing great.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. And and um, yeah, so our goal was really to just try as much as we could to to bring a level of of quality storytelling and investigation um, to Kenya and to different parts of the continent um, as we grow and. And I, I think over that time, we've also developed a fairly strong skill set in um, documentary storytelling, long form journalism. Um, you know, from 2019, we've also you know started to look back at what the building blocks of good investigative journalism are, and one of them is fact checking. So before uh, COVID and and right after um, you know Trump. We, we decided to you know, create a, a fact-checking website as well that would help um, journalists kind of understand the importance of facts um, in, pro- in, in the production of journalism and how to get to them.
0: And John, you clearly stated it, and yet when you were beginning your statements, you more of prefaced it to say, I was hoping to change things. And then that brought to my mind, are you suggesting that you feel you couldn't have changed things the way you were hoping, that young ambition of going into journalism to make an impact?
1: Well, I think if if you're a young person who doesn't think that they can change the world, then, then you really need to you know, be shaken up a little bit. I think that's the beauty of being young, that you, you have this energy and, and these ideas that you think will impact the world. Um, but growing in, in the profession, you, you, you kind of, I, I will not lie, I have gone through cycles where I've been very jaded about um, the work that we do, the, the, the quality is not notwithstanding. I think mm. the impact, trying to, you know, and recognizing that many times the work that you do will A, be thankless and, and B, not have the kind of effect that you were hoping that it would have selfishly. Um, because you know people react to different stimuli in in society and sometimes the story that you that you worked on and spent hours and days and maybe even months on might just not be you know maybe the public's not ready or it's not received for any number of reasons Uh it might work Mm. Um, but also I think because the the nature and this I think is is a global phenomenon Mm. the nature of of our of our global politics and leadership and and has become very cynical and um fairly uh, what's the word i think very cynical a of in 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 and of itself and also mm-hmm. very cynical of, of um, voices that challenge voices that try and hold them accountable and mm-hmm. and you know the you know, in as much as it's helped me launch my business, you know, the, the digital age of journalism has also helped you know um, supercharge things like um, fake news and, and people being able to create their own counter narratives and counter reporting and 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 weaponize fake news mm. that really has been difficult for for you know true journalism to be able to surmount. Mm. Um, that's a challenge that we face today. And, and, and then of course, this audiences are, are overstimulated. They get their sources and their news from all over the place. And in fact, we're discussing it today, You know, how can an audience member care about one thing when they're being asked to care about everything? Everything. So, yeah, and, and so in all of this noise, you, you have to try and figure out how to thread the needle and tell stories that are impactful, tell stories that will get further than you, you, you hope. Sometimes it works and and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, my default position isn't one of being jaded, nor is it one of being, you know, I I guess overly, not not ambitious, but overly hopeful of, of where my journalism will go. Mine is a position where I think of my journalism as, you know, almost like writing books and putting them in a library, where it becomes part of the public record. It can be returned to, it can be studied. Some days it will be acted on, but other days it just might not. But it doesn't mean that you don't produce, you, do, you keep producing. And that's how I think of it. Oh my goodness. And
0: talking of uh, books, congratulations to you, John. While getting ready with this, and then when I was checking, I found mm-hmm. out a book you have written, which is published. So congrats, I'll come back to the book so we can hear more. But that nonetheless, the challenges you and sometimes, and I agree, having done journalism myself, I know sometimes the passion with which you go to the field, hoping to make an impact. And sometimes your story makes a great impact. And so there are those ones, too. and then of course, there is the ones you do, and a story that you feel it should be so embarrassing, it should be so annoying, and it should lead to impact immediately, and yet you don't get it. Now, let's at least celebrate some of what we have been able to do. That nonetheless, and as I was mentioning, you have all done great work. The first time I met Hannah um, in, in at a global investigative journalism conference in, in South Africa, she was working on. She just mentioned uh, Okinawa, and Okinawa has become, for the good or bad, um, gotten global them because of US presence there, particularly US military presence there. And Hannah, wait, Hannah, you spent, I don't know, months, whatever years, doing investigative stories on some of this. Tell me over your career what you are proud of, some of those stories you will look back to, and you will say, I am glad about the impact that my story led to, or it brought, or the change that mm. must have resulted from doing so
2: yeah i just um i'm glad you mentioned about the first time i met in in south africa i remember the time we were you know doing an interview right Um, that was actually my first interview that i got asked i got interviewed by african journalist no way yeah (laughs) so i was really proud of that i was telling my mm. colleagues like hey you know i'm in here.
0: <laughs> yes and we aired it on west africa democracy radio in akka senegal
2: absolutely so mm-hmm. that was a good time it's almost been six years since then right yeah so um like i said i am i was born and raised up in the mainland of japan without really knowing what the life is like in okinawa so to give a little background about okinawa so okinawa used to be an independent nation uh but uh, until it was conquered by Japanese government I mean back then Japan was like Japan was not like a unified nation back then and it, it was I'm talking about 1600
0: yes and those were the times of emperors
2: it was not still the imperialistic it's a, the Samurai era Samurai so okay Japan was like a correction of the small states hmm. and they fought each other okay right? so it was like a Civil War, in Japan was the, in the Civil War, mm. and then one of the states, uh, you know, invaded Okinawa to mm. be a part of it. And then after that, Meiji, after the Meiji Restriction, that was a modernized Jap- Japanese, Japan as a country, one nation, uh, under this uh, imperialism and emperor. So in the Meiji era, Okinawa has become officially a part of Japan. And it was so. 1879 was the year Okinawa was officially uh, integrated in Japanese political economic system, and then their name was changed from Ryukyu from Ryukyu to Okinawa. So Okinawa people or like Ryukyu people are not historically, you know, Japanese. They were like uh, enforced to become a Japanese. And then uh, their culture is so different, the history is different, their identity is different from Japanese. I see. And uh, interestingly, Okinawa has a really beautiful culture of diversity integration because it's a, it's a located at the border of Taiwan, China, the Philippines, you know, the Korea. So mm. the whole region is really rich in culture. So they've been exchanging their commerce and cultures and songs and if you go there you will realize that actually this like national border didn't exist on the water back then so interesting right mm. but however that brings a big contra- contradiction nowadays because when japan lost the war in 1945 which was uh, which was the end of the imperialism so, or yes. the, the militarism
0: and end of the Second World War mm-hmm. end of
2: the Second World War and the Japan suddenly became, you know, democratic country I'm doing quote-unquote democratic mm-hmm. and then, um, but Okinawa was still remain under US occupation until 1972 so mm-hmm. op- for, for over 27 years after the war Okinawa people were not even Japanese but not even American but practically, they were colonized by the U.S. military. Then, um, But since then, Okinawa still have nearly 70% of the land mass of U.S. military uh, bases in Japan. So they have a huge burden there. And the U.S. military occupies nearly 15% of the mainland of Okinawa. So as soon as you go to Okinawa, you realize that, oh, the US military base is here, you know, this is military basis. So Mm. you see how this military military you know presence, you know, actually impacting the local community.
0: community. And just to step in and then you can build on from there, one of the most difficult. Um, as a journalist, one of the most difficult stories to cover is the the security services. They are inaccessible or they only open up to the extent to which they want to tell you. (laughs) So um, having covered at least two of the US uh, military operations in Africa, in one of their joint AFRICOM operations in Senegal and previously in Ghana, um, I have had, and of course, our own national security and regional security and all. So tell me how you were able to um, navigate around covering this story. And if you could also link it to, how does your coverage impacted the community especially?
2: Uh, sure, so it's true that it's difficult to cover U.S. military, you know, what's happening inside the military bases. And of course, you know, the consequences of the U.S. military occupation is is uh, evident because of the number of accidents and the crimes, including murder and, you know, rape and then arson, there's uh, serious crimes as well. And as a reporter, I have to cover these issues. And often I have to encounter legal issues, uh, which has become later become my core of my reporting. Uh, so when the US military committed crime outside the base, and if that was on duty, their legal uh, jurisdiction goes to U.S. side. So even though Japanese citizens or local Okinawan people got hurt by these crimes, if the personnel was on duty, the local jurisdiction cannot do anything to prosecute you know, the perpetrator. Mm. And then even though that accident or crimes happened during off-duty, let's say they were you know it was a you know weekend and yes. a military personnel drink and drive and then let's say they hit someone you know local people and they they didn't hit the run and that's obviously happened off duty case right mm. and then a local local prosecutor can prosecute these cases however the US Japan made a secret agreement nearly 60 years ago that Japan will basically abandon the mm legal prosecution right to these uh, U.S. military members. So because of that secret agreement, it's really difficult to prosecute accountability. So that was when I decided to use my journalism, especially investigative journalism, to cover the issues. So going back to your question that what really, uh, you know, memorable for me was doing this Mm -hmm. work to bring the justice about to what kind of unjustable agreement the u.s japan made back in 60 years ago Mm -hmm. and still it's affecting the people in the marginalized community like okinawa and for those who got hurt or they injured or lost the family members of these uh, crimes cannot do anything because of that international agreement so Uh, that was the these were the stories I really thought I'm glad that I was able to do that Mm. Um, but at the same time this is more like so that was more like you know like a bigger social impact right but what, what really helped me motivate my career is just the getting appreciation from my leaders or my audience so like besides that you know, these uh, U.S. military crime issues, I was I was very passionate about doing a story about a battle of Okinawa oh. uh, in 1945. So there are so many survivors who are still suffering for the PTSD issues. And I, will, I was, you know, reaching out to the grandparents and who have even talked about their own experience to their own family. And I reached out to them and listened to their stories and you know, documented their horrifying experience in the war. And I, when I published that documentary film, which is called uh, Boy Soldiers uh, in 2018, right. uh, many, many of the survivors came up to me and say, thank you, you know, thank you so much for doing this work and bring my voice to society, to Japanese and society and people around the world.
0: Hmm.
2: But these and are... That, the people, yeah. yeah
0: and that, that in itself is a lot rewarding to have um, such a response from a whole people who... And up to today, interestingly, the story of Okinawa is still because I know there are those who are still pushing, for example, for, for Japan to eventually take um, ownership back in or full ownership back into um, Okinawa. So up to today, it still remains a, a, a tiny issue correct
2: absolutely absolutely so i really believe that the journalist uh work is really crucial not only telling the audience that what's going on right now and what might happen because of the the consequence of the us you know or like us japan relationship or what the government is doing or the people in power is doing but also we really have to help people learn what happened in the past mm-hmm. because we can we can learn from the past a lot and then I, I probably I, I would say that learning the past could be the only way to predict what would happen in the future because we are repeating the same mistakes right, right? so i agree mm-hmm. thank
0: you and i um please take a breather and i will go over to john and john we will just follow in line with the same question and ask While we celebrate press freedom and while we celebrate the good work that journalists are doing, it's also important to highlight some of um, the impacts that our stories, our investigative pieces make. Take us through a bit of some of what you have done over this period that you can look back at. If you, if you mean sharing some of um, what you've already documented if the excerpts of your book before yeah. we hopefully get to read it, um, please feel free to tell me some.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I will share, you know, one of two stories that, um, that will, will be in my book. One is a story that, that actually got me out of the newsroom, N- not in a bad way. I should say it, it's the one that made me jump, right? because we had been considering uh, leaving and, and it was about um, lead poisoning um, of a community in Mombasa, which is a coastal city in Kenya. And it had been happening over about almost 10 years with, with very, very little coverage. So it was a small um, informal settlement uh, with about 3,000 people um, on the outskirts of Mombasa in a place called Changamwe. And, um, a lead smelting plant um, was built right next to the community, and for ten years, uh, when the plant operated, um, you know, lead you know filled the air, landed, and and lead particles would be on the roof and filtered through the to the water and and into soil, and of course was inhaled, and and if you know you know at least if if you followed what happened with uh, the flint. Uh, lead, lead water poisoning um, scandal in the States, then you understand just how deeply and how long-term the effect, mm. effects of lead can be um, on children, on, on women, on, on men uh, and they're very, very severe leading to death. Um, and so why that story was important to me was, was for two reasons. The, the community really opened their hearts to us and really told us really what was going on, and gave us the opportunity to to conduct one of the the largest scale tests of that community, blood tests um, of members of the community, which proved beyond reasonable doubt that everybody in that community had levels of lead in their blood, and and that you know that was a very negative thing. Now that the reporting itself added to you know the impetus of of um, civil society organizations that were looking for justice for for this community and about 6 years later after taking a class action suit uh, to kenyan courts they were awarded 10 million dollars it doesn't mm. sound like a lot for a community that big but it was very impactful and one of the largest um awards that have ever been made by a kenyan court mm. uh, yeah, and, and and that was a very, very proud moment for me. Um, in spite of the fact that our environmental authority is appealing the award, I, I think they'll still lose. I think it was a very, very proud moment for me in that it it reassured me, years after we did the story, that the power of journalism is is really, it, it's inevitable that someone will pay attention to the work that you do. Mm. And that was awesome for me. And, and, and also, just how important it is to to really listen to what people are saying about the impacts um, that certain things are are having on their lives and in their communities. Really starting with people and then expanding um, from there is is a lesson that I I would teach to any journalist. If you are going to do a story that, that is important, the closer you get to people, the closer you get to a story. Um, it's something that was taught to me years before and it's something that I believe today and it guides all of my storytelling. Mm-hmm. I think the other two stories that, that that were impactful for me over the past maybe seven years um, were uh, a story uh, that, that we did about um, illicit financial flows and money laundering from uh, a war-torn country, South Sudan. That money winding up in, in Kenya and in Uganda and in capitals in the region from essentially warmongers, war profiteers, and corrupt politicians in that country, who were robbing South Sudan at the time when um, the the communities there were in dire need of food aid, in dire need of development, hospitals, that sort of thing. And those things wound up in, in our countries. So that was a, a really, um, you know, important and impactful piece of mm. journalism. Um, the final one, I think, um, was the first sort of like global collaboration that I had been a part of in uh, the Pandora Papers, where um, we found, uh, together with a team um, that we're working with uh, from Finance Uncovered, um, found uh, files and documents that that showed that our former president, while he was a sitting president at the time that we reported, but our former president um, and members of his family were using um, essentially, tax, tax havens to um, oh. to to, register, to stash money, stash yeah some of their wealth, mm. which you know you, you you make the argument that it's not illegal, but it's it's very unseemly for a leader of of a country to you know um, through his family also depend on these kinds of structures, which happen to also be depended upon by some of the world's criminal elite. Um, that was an important story for us because. It, it really, I mean, asked very serious questions, I think, of the nature of our leadership and, and, and forced a global question um, to a local context. That's what I liked about the collaboration uh, that, that we had with uh, ICIJ and, and um, all of the people who worked on the Pandora Papers. It really globalized and problematized the issue of um, the use of tax havens. And and gave these very interesting and nuanced stories from around the world greater context and a, and a global audience to reflect on one of the most important issues of our time, which is the transfer of wealth, not just um, from one place to another, but many times. And this might not have been the case, the case with the Kenyatas, but many times between one social class and another. Um, mm. then also coming on the off on the heels of COVID, where we saw theft of an unimaginable and unmitigated unmitigated scale across the world happening in the same way via procurement and the largest i think transfer of wealth from one social class to another, to making, another. yeah hmm. making the elite billionaires and billionaires hmm. and trillionaires was unprecedented in our world so i think these kinds of stories are, are, are really important to help us reflect on the nature of the society in which we live and yeah. I, I've been proud to be a part of them. And, and I think, you know, if when I reflect on, on press freedom, I, I think about really our better angels as journalists. And, and, and John, working. I'm
0: going to transition us some into uh, press freedom, and especially yeah. the freedom you have to practice. As we mark World well Press Freedom Day, I want us to discuss the freedom to practice journalism. Um, more recently, I have been doing um, research, looking at press, uh, looking at the global press index and how our countries are faring. And for example, my home country, Ghana, hasn't been doing too well over the past three, four years. From being I'm at 20 at a point in the global press out of 180 countries ahead of even the US, UK and the rest, by 2022, Ghana has dropped from there to 60. and of course, because of recent incidents we've seen, uh, murder of a journalist, attack on some media houses and and journalists, and unfortunately, often little action is seen in terms of um, taking steps to correct or to at least uh, bring the perpetrators to book. And I always begin with you, putting your experience practicing journalism into context, and in a larger case, how you see the state of press freedom in in Japan, for example, um, over this period, and how concerned she would be?
2: I would say the state of journalism in Japan is very, very problematic right now. It's very at this significant risk of even further deterioration. Uh, Especially during the last 10 years, the journalism has declined a lot in Japan. It's uh, started in 2012 when the Abe administration back then uh, started discussion about the state secrecy law, which enacted 2013. And that law defines that if journalists or uh, public officers release the secret information, they can be jailed up to 10 years. But the problem is not only that they are eligible, they are legally able to put journalists in jail behind the bar, but also there's no definition of secret in this law. So whoever people in power declare that this journalist released a state secret, the government or police can put them in jail. And we don't know what is secret, even at this point. So since the law enacted in Japan, there was significant change in the newsrooms, Mm. including the newsroom that I was in, Okinawa. So there was a discussion that, oh, we don't want to have a problem, you know. So the purpose of this law was actually not actually, you know, catching the journalist, but more like starting self-censorship. At each newsroom, so rather than just exercising the law by people in power by themselves, the people in newsroom started to be horrified. Started to do a censorship more heavier than before because they they want to avoid these uh, troubles. Mm-hmm. So that was really the turning point in the recent journalism. And then after that, in twenty fifteen there was a Asahi newspaper have a big incident. Asahi newspaper is one of the biggest newspapers yes. in Japan. Right. And they released a special investigation report about a Yoshida report. The Yoshida was the leader of Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Papuan, which has a catastrophic accident in 2011, mm-hmm. in, in Fukushima accident. And that report contains the last testimony of the the director Yoshida. So it's like a first class internal document. And Asahi reporter revealed that. And then to reveal that kind of information, the journalists, investigative journalists, have to make the package complete, right? Because if there's a one single hole, people can find a hole and it goes through it to destroy mm. the coverage. Mm. So that's why we, when we are doing investigative reporting, we really have to make it 120% perfect. Mm. But unfortunately, this uh, coverage has a uh, one single hole and the, the government didn't miss that. So there was a huge buzzing toward the Asahi newspaper because that single hole and they were successfully ruined the whole coverage. So what and happened despite,
0: was... Despite this fantastic job by this investigative journalist going undercover and Fukushima plant disaster or accident was a global phenomenon because, of course, it is a nuclear power plant and for journalists to go undercover and do this. And so this is one more thing hopefully we will have will be concluding on, which has to do with um, this concept about when they talk of journalism standards and the fact that journalists um, in US law, the US First Amendment basically says, freedom of information, freedom of speech is unhinged. It is the, and according to UN, it is the cornerstone, is the bedrock. So in other words, access, the freedom to tell a story. And in doing that, it even in the US circle, it says it is even okay to err. It doesn't encourage journalists to just make mistakes, but it, 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 it basically lays the foundation that journalism is a human institution. There may be errors. And so that's the last point I want to. But John, uh, let me come to you also and tell me what is your view when it comes to um, what are what are the challenges when it comes to practicing journalism Uh, and what do you see in terms of concerns that we should worry about in terms of laws, in terms of national policies, security services and all.
2: Do you mean the practice as a teacher or the practice as, you know,
0: mostly um, a journalist, but I wanted to take it, uh, John's view and then we can come back to circle on,
1: um, yes. So I think for me, the, The threats are coming from um, a number of quarters, and and this is how I look at it. I think technology in and of itself, I think is a good thing, and and journalists and journalism has always been at the vanguard of um, the use of new and emerging technology. But what this has done uh, specifically for um, the business model of journalism is that it has, made it incredibly difficult to be able to create value out of journalism. Um, and I mean monetary value that, that can maintain um, newsrooms, that can help deploy journalists around the world, um, to be able to extract meaning from the things that we see on a daily basis. And I'm not just speaking like of technology in a very benign way. I think its deployment um, by larger tech um, companies that have have uh, created various platforms either on social media or elsewhere um, uses the the intellectual property that's generated within journalism and and has profited off of it um, in ways that journalist journalism has and, and and that business model have not yet been able to either you know, copy or scale to to be able to support, um, you know, journalism. This is a concern around the world. There are very few organizations that are sustainable and and can see themselves as sustainable in the long term. Money is a big issue for the profession to be able to survive. I think, um, I don't think that it can be gainsaid. Um, I think the second thing that faces our profession that is is of huge concern to me is that bad actors, in a sense, have have started to weaponize um the very tools that we use to be able to um, propagate um, our journalism and and use not just the tools but also the technique and the language and the storytelling, almost as if, you know, almost like wolves in sheep's clothing mm. um, that that helps. Confuse it confuse the recipients of messages and, and really affected the, the ecosystem of trust in the public. Yes. yes.
2: That, that's
1: a huge thing for, for, for journalism. And to be able to restore that trust, because journalism is no longer about breaking news. It is about being able to derive meaning, to give deeper context and to be able to help people navigate their lives on a daily basis. That doesn't happen in a breaking news tweet or in a bulletin. It happens through in deep, insightful journalism. That if, if the value for that is affected and if the interlocutors that are using the same tools um, that we're using are using them for bad means, then it means that the profession itself suffers from a very serious deficit in trust. Um, not to say that some of this isn't self-inflicted, I think we also have to be very very reflective at this moment about some of the the, the paths that um that have been taken by by um you know institutions to be able to harm that that sense of public trust. Mm. I think the, the final thing is I think the question that we're all struggling with, that if if there's no value um or, or rather discernible value that people can see beyond being flashy or glamorous why would people spend their time studying the the profession you know if it if it's the sort of thing that you know that you're not going to be able to earn you know a sustainable livelihood i'm not talking about being rich just being able to raise your families etc Yes. then why would you do it what that does is that over time it starts to erode that the quality um yes of gender, and the academic rigor that has to go into the study of journalism as a practice that is you know the way you describe journalism as a human endeavor mm-hmm. it is a human endeavor but it has always benefited from people being who are at the the, the grindstone mm-hmm. um really studying the craft being able to refine it and improve it absolutely and it takes practice it does retire, right? mm-hmm. and, and what happens if if there are fewer and fewer people there is that it becomes less and less of a sharp tool to be able to use for the betterment of society. And John, so hold
0: we- your breath. I want to, as we transition towards the, the concluding part, I want to say you all highlighted them, the glowing threat, especially looking at, um, and it's now global. Threats from political decisions, uh, politicians who are creating laws. So uh, political stroke, legal obstacles going on. In fact, in my home country, Ghana, repealed a criminal libel law and we celebrated it. Only to find out that now the security services are using this old law, 1960 act called the Criminal and Offenses Act. Basically, we says that anyone who publishes or re- reproduces a statement which is false or likely to cause what they call alarm. So in Ghana, you will hear this thing called, they will charge a journalist for creating what is called fear and panic. And this law says you are guilty of a misdemeanor. You could be jailed up to five years. The funny thing about that law, for example, it says it doesn't matter. It says it is no defense whether the journalist knew it or did not know or did not even have reason to believe this rumor or statement was true. So Mm -hmm. in other words, you could genuinely do a story. And if there is a minor error, like um, Hanayu was given from the Fukushima reporting example, the fact that there is a minor error, that becomes a basis to clamp down on you. And like I was saying, um, the, the UN standard now is there must be clear indication, especially in exceptional cases where let's say for national defense or national security, they may say certain security information may be, may be in a certain clearance of assault, even that people are challenging it. But to kind of create a, a, a law that is so broad that now what it basically does, it, it leaves a chilling effect on journalists. Journalists are now looking at their back when they have to investigate when they have to deploy the power they're giving to them. And our constitutions also say, journalists are the fourth estate. What does that mean then? Where is our power? Or where is the power of the journalist? And I am just saying that as I bring to you for the concluding words in terms of, one, how hopeful are you for the future of our industry or our profession as journalists? And for us to get there, for us to keep this hope and to keep on making impactful stories. What must change? What more must be done? Let me come to Ana, You
2: Well, I don't want to be too hopeless to wrap up this conversation.
0: We can but... be. We have to be hopeful, <laughs> yes.
2: The Looking at the current journal situation, I think the future we are heading to right now is very, very complicated, very difficult. And sometimes I feel like my profession as a journalist is sometimes I feel hopeless especially Mm. I spend so much time and money and don't hear any feedback or any response from the audience or listeners I feel hopeless really but on the other hand I know how important journalism is in current world especially in the world that people live in the small bubbles where they believe in their own truth and facts and then they these bubbles never meet each other they live in these each you know each bubbles comfortably mm. and they don't want to even break their own bubbles because external world is full of truth and facts they don't want to see right mm. so however the future we're heading to right now if we continue this kind of a culture the future will be hopeless because it might be the word of civil war, you know, if we believe in the individual truth and the facts. So the need of a journalism, need of a journalist is much more significant than ever, I would say. So hmm. to, to do that, I think uh, there are two crucial missions that we need to develop. The first one is strengthen the network between journalists, colleagues. So you know, doing this kind, this kind of podcast is one of them. Hmm. You know, joining it, J-I, uh, J-I, J- JIJ J-I-J-I. A global
0: investigative journalism network.
2: Right, right. Would it be another, another action we can do? And also we can do actions at, at domestic levels. For instance, I recently created a network called Reporters Beyond Border Japan, which hmm. is the first nationwide journalist network to bring together reporters across the borders of media companies, because nice. we used to you know, fight each other as a competitor, right? And they say, let's not do that anymore. Let's work together, because we face all the single problem of media freedom and independence. Right. So that's why I created this organization. I really hope that we can advance more, both in domestic and international levels. The second one I, I think I would say is bringing more aspiring journalists the journalist that who can predict the profession in the future. Mm. So to do that I wanna highlight that this profession as a journalist, I will say one of the most exciting job ever in this universe. And I'm so glad that I have become a journalist. I am it- too. You too, right? I mm-hmm. guess all of us agree, mm-hmm. you know? Because listening to the story of others, I and mean, you yes. find a problem in that. People then-
0: inviting you, strangers, people you have no idea about, look back at what you do and they're like, I appreciate what you do. And they open their doors for you to tell their stories. So while it may at some point be discouraging, it's still, an industry or it is a profession that you can hold your head high with if you are able to do your work ethically and professionally. And I you mentioned one thing and I will need to highlight it before I give the final word to John, which has to do with, you said there could be even conflict, there could even be civil war if we, and we witnessed it here in the US in 2021, when alternative facts Became the facts to some people who stood on it and even went all the way to attack an institution <laughs> such as the, the state capitol on head of, all because they were they were made to believe whichever sources they get their news from, of course, influenced by the person in the White House, managed to go all the way to challenge. And this is democracy. This is the, the the bastion of democracy, the United States. And yet we witness this the, here. So this is the concern you are raising, that if we don't counter, if we don't give journalists this power and we don't empower them to tell their work well, alternative facts will grow and that will threaten the very system we are promoting, which is democracy and the freedom of individuals. Uh, john that leads me to give you the final words
1: well i think my reflections on the future are that um you know we're in a time when we can really scenario build um and and think about the kinds of things that we need to do now to be able to create that hopeful future all the things that we do or don't do that um you know create a, a future of despondency and um, a very bleak and a very bleak one hanayo has has spoken about has spoken about both. I think the one thing that I would add is that the the power of collaboration and partnership that that Hanayo spoke to is is something that we can deploy to be able to help grow, professionalize, and even save this profession. And I think one partnership that sometimes journalism tends to forget about is partnership with um, its audiences. Audiences being everyday people, people who have um, their own very nuanced experiences of the things and the phenomena that we are, that we're dealing with and, and trying to make us and make, make sense of. I think that there, and I, I don't mean partnership in a way that we're going to be asking our audiences to write our leads for us, you know, but simply by listening, by help asking them to participate um, with us in, in helping really shape um, the agenda that's the, that's the opportunity that we have we really we really have as as hannah had mentioned a challenge um, when people are in their own bubbles mm. and the responsibility of journalism i think now and in the future to get people talking to one another and this is by having different viewpoints represented in different spaces And it means sometimes listening to things that you might not agree with or you might not like as a journalist and beliefs that you might not ascribe to. But looking at a world in which there is no one dominant view of of what defines what, but there are multiple views and there there are multiple takes on things, but ultimately that the facts are singular. Right and helping people drive um, themselves towards that conclusion, but it only happens when you listen. You don't ignore. Like for instance, to the you know to the to the January sixth invasion that you that you mentioned, part of the genesis of that was that a completely huge swathe of the United States population was essentially ignored by the mainstream media Mm. and their voices seemed to be extreme outlandish and and were ignored, laughed at and possibly even, you know, um, deliberately kept out of the news cycle. But whereas if there was sustained and and deliberate effort to really debate the things that people are talking about, I I believe in the United States, then the outcomes might have been different. And Mm. this happened around the world we have the greatest opportunity to speak to one another and yet this is the time ironically where we're speaking at each other with the most you know with with a a huge ferociousness
0: Mm.
1: is the job of journalism the job of journalism now is to be a bridge and act as a bridge for social and and public and political discourse through insightful in-depth investigative journalism through Mm. Um, public public um or, or public affairs and current affairs programming through TikTok, you know and and short and and uh, different platforms that can provide this avenue but really encourage a global sometimes a national even a regional or community level discussion that carries as many voices as possible that's my belief
0: and as we conclude um I believe you all said it in various forms, which also has to do with one collective work. So mm-hmm. um, seeing more collaborations to do major works. And John, I'm glad that you mentioned the Pandora's Papers because it shows the power of bringing global journalism together. Some of the best investigative stories that I've done, one of them, which the our former African investigative journalism body first sponsored was um, tracking uh, fair trade and what we call the not so fair trade, looking at fair trade uh, operations in the cocoa industry, that story made so much impact on the continent, but also in Europe. So I am so excited to have you both for this conversation. And I want to say thank you especially, it's odd hours for the two of you. And yet, you made time to be here for us to have this important conversation, marking World Press Freedom Day 2023. So. Thank you, Hanayu, um, yeah. And thank you, John Alan Namu in Nairobi, Kenya for um, this conversation. And I guess we'll keep the rest going on social media. So thank you.
2: Pleasure is ours. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Ben.